0: So welcome back to the Athlete Climate Academy. I'm lucky to be joined today by Hugh Griffiths. Uh, Hugh, tell us a bit about yourself.
1: Hiya, I'm a marine biologist and I work for the British Antarctic Survey and I've been working in Antarctica for the last 20 years.
0: I've been fascinated by Antarctica since I can remember. Um, And one of the reasons why I'm so fascinated by it now is the remoteness of it. And and I feel like when we talk about how the, the climate is changing, how, we, how humans are impacting the environment, one of the things that, that crops up to me all the time is these remote places. And when we, we find out that, that humans have kind of touched these most remote places, it impacts us um, really strangely. But so in Antarctica, obviously, no one except scientists really live there. Have you, have you lived there for a bit? only on
1: ships so I spent three months at a time at a maximum kind of living on a ship so it it's kind of nice because you get to move around it's not like being stuck in one place but I've visited I've been lucky enough to visit all the UK research stations and a few other nationalities as well so you get a kind of taste of how different people live in different parts of Antarctica as well and the weird thing is the national stations reflect the countries they come from so like the Brazilian one was like 30 degrees or whatever and the 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 British ones are very British, and the German ones are very German. So yeah, it's it's like even though it's the most remote place you can think of, it still feels weirdly like visiting another country every time you go from another place.
0: So you know, Antarctica. People do kind of live there not not permanently. Um, there are animals that live there permanently, obviously. Um, but like I said, it, it strikes me as this last remote place that humans are yet to really impact. But now with climate change, we are seeing that even though we're not right next to it, we don't, no one lives there permanently. We are making these massive changes. Um, So I'm excited, I'm not excited to see, (laughs) I am terrified to see how it's going to change in a hundred years, 200 years. But let's take it back to Antarctica of old. How has it changed from when it first formed? as Was it the fifth largest continent, to how it is today? Um, How did Antarctica become what it is now?
1: That's a really interesting question, because most people think, oh, Antarctica is at the South Pole. That's why it's cold. And it must always have been cold or been somewhere else if it was ever warm. But I have colleagues who are paleontologists, and they can show you fossilised trees, fossilised animals, all sorts of things that show you it was a... A really lush and rich place on the land had forest and the sea had you know huge dinosaurs and swimming marine reptiles and everything and it was pretty much in the same position as it is now about a hundred million years ago but the difference was it had other continents attached to it so instead of as it is now it's a continent surrounded by ocean and that ocean is at about between about 40 degrees south and 60 degrees south. So if you've ever heard of the roaring 40s or the furious 50s or the screaming 60s, that's basically the windiest place in the world. And because these continents have moved away from Antarctica, there's no land masses at that latitude. So the winds don't get stopped by anything or slowed down. So they spin around the earth at that latitude, whipping up the ocean and moving it around with them. And so, because these continents moved away, the ocean, instead of going up and down, bringing warm water from the tropics down to Antarctica, has created this almost washing machine effect around Antarctica that keeps it thermally insulated from the rest of the world. And so the warm water can't get in, and the cold water stays around Antarctica. And with the six months of darkness, it just gets colder and colder, to the point where ice sheets grew on the land and the forests were gone. And that was... Although the dinosaurs died out 60-something million years ago, it was actually only really in the last kind of 20 million years that Antarctica's really started to get cold. So for most of Antarctica's history, it hasn't been this massive slab of ice that's four kilometres thick. It's actually, it was for much longer, it was an almost tropical looking place. And now you won't find a plant bigger than a moss on the entire continent. And so we've gone from forests to moss and the biggest animals would have been dinosaurs and the biggest animals we have now are mites and wingless midges. So literally the biggest land animals have six legs but are, you know, fit on the head of a pin kind of animals. So it's been a huge change. But what we have now has been pretty stable on and off with ice ages for millions of years. So like you say about things changing, a lot of the life that lives in Antarctica has only ever known cold temperatures.
0: Uh, I, it's something that I actually dedicated an entire talk to the to Milankovic cycles and um, and high ice and ice caps because one of the things that crops up time and time again, especially with uh, our changing climate, is that well, the the climate changes naturally anyway, which of course it does. Um, but that doesn't mean that humans can't also be changing. Um, what one of the things we say is, you know, so Milankovitch cycles being um, the the orbit of the Earth. Sometimes we get we get that changes from a circle into a, a more of an egg shape. Uh, sometimes we tilt more towards the sun. Sometimes we tilt more away. Um, and at the moment, we're in kind of like an average of all of those things, where humans are just in a really special place where we can hijack the, the, the climate in a way that, that might not have been possible before. Um, so the, there are natural changes. And, you know, like you say, Antarctica has kind of survived a lot of those changes. It's been ice for, for millions and millions of years now.
1: Yeah, and we do know that that ice has grown and shrunk. And that's one of the amazing things that we have anything left on the continent at all. If you imagine four kilometers of ice, above your head how much weight that would be on you the whole continent is roughly a kilometre squashed further into the ground than it should be because of the weight of that ice so if you if the ironic thing about melting antarctica is sea levels would definitely rise and you know my house in cambridge would be gone but antarctica would pretty much gradually grow out of the ocean again because of the ice would be taken off it and that's kind of crazy in itself but Antarctica also, the life that lives on the continental shelf, for example, or these animals and plants that live in the tiny pockets of modern-day Antarctica, about 0.4% of the land is exposed out of the ice, so is rock. And there's no fresh water running anywhere or anything like that, so there's no rivers. So life clings on in tiny patches. So how they coped when the ice sheets were expanding during the ice ages is beyond me. But that's some of the big questions about these things that are called refugia. So small places where life can hang on even though the ice was spreading out. So that's one of the questions we try to answer is where and how did life survive during these what are called glacial maxima, so the expansion of the ice. But at the same time, we also know that we can see clues in life for when we had these warmer periods in the past and the ice has shrunk a bit. So you might have ancient seaways running between what? Are currently all covered in ice but would be islands if you melted some of the ice and that might connect two populations of animals and you can tell that from their genetics so biology can help inform the kind of physics of climate models by saying actually these animals did find a way of let's put it politely talking to each other and reproducing um so biology studying what we see there now is really interesting but also everything we see in the world today is a reflection of what's happened before So whether that's past extinctions or past expansions of animals, and over half of the species we find in Antarctica are unique to Antarctica. And there's something like nearly 20,000 species, we think, in the sea around Antarctica. So if you think of that white desert with a few penguins waddling around, those higher predators make up about 70 species in the whole Southern Ocean. Then you've got the kind of krill and plankton and stuff, which is about another 700 species of things hanging about in the water. Then you get to the bottom of the sea, and there's about 19,000 species that we find about 10 or 20% of everything we find at the bottom of the sea is new to science. And all of that comes from this incredible stability of Antarctica. It's got really quite predictable patterns where well, it has had until we've started messing around with things, where every year the sea ice would double the area of the continent. By literally the sea freezes and that frozen ocean seems like the worst thing that can happen to an ecosystem but actually if you imagine putting up a huge structure that plants can grow on so these microscopic plants in the ocean tend to sink out but if you put a load of ice that they can get trapped in and live in then they've got something to grow on that can support more weight than just floating in the ocean. So the ice supports huge quantities of sea ice, algae, and then when that melts in the spring, that rains down on everything and provides food for everything. So you also have the krill, which they larvae over winter in the sea ice, and they're safe from the predators because they're in the tiny gaps in the ice. And them surviving in huge numbers means that they're probably the most abundant organism on the planet in the many billions of, organi- of animals. And they feed pretty much everything. So unlike most food chains where you might eat something, if you're a meat eater that's gone through, you know, a couple of iterations, if you're an eagle, you don't go straight to the thing that eats, you know, the plankton, you eat a whole load of things in between, like you go up through lots of levels. The biggest animals in the world, blue whales, eat Antarctic krill. So do the leopard seals, so do the albatrosses, so do everything else. So you've just got one step between the production of food and the consumers, and that's the krill. And the krill are also quite messy eaters. So they drop a lot of their food in spitballs, and also poo out this plankton as not that well digested so that it sinks faster. So the bottom of the sea, you've got all these top predators fighting out for every last morsel of krill at the top and then eating each other. But at the bottom of the sea, you've got animals that are just waiting for food to rain down to them. They don't have to be predators. They don't have to be fighting. You can have huge, two-meter tall glass sponges. You can have um, the main kind of predators are things like ribbon worms or um, or starfish, because we don't have most types of crabs and we don't have lobsters. And we we don't even have sharks because it's too cold. The water's minus two degrees. Most sharks fall asleep if they get close to zero. So it's a weird thing that looks more like that time of the dinosaurs I was talking about, where we have animals that don't do very well in the world's ocean today because they're quite simple and can't defend themselves against sort of more modern predators. Whereas in Antarctica, paleontologists would look at it and go, wow, that looks like the Jurassic or the Triassic or whatever. So it's an exciting place to work because it's nothing like anywhere else as well. But it does come with that, that caveat that these animals are adapted to cold water. So although there's not much life on land, and that will probably do better if Antarctica warms up, ironically, because the plants will get more water, the animals will have more food because there'll be more plants, and you will get this greening of Antarctica in the future, potentially. But in the oceans, if the sea ice melts too early, there's less food coming down to the bottom of the sea. If the water warms up too much, animals that are used to a really cold water will not be able to cope with the warming conditions. But also, there's the chance that animals that can't cope with the cold could come in, and they might be out competing or even predating on the animals we have. So, even though couple of degrees change in temperature, water temperature in Antarctica, we've already seen a one degree change in the last sort of 30 years, could cause havoc in that ecosystem in a way that we don't understand. So if, you, if it upsets the krill, that's the whole ecosystem collapsing. And we don't know what will upset the krill necessarily. So I guess it's a long answer to what you ask, but there's everything kind of cascades when you have the ice, right through to the animals. There's a direct link, there's always a direct link back to the cold and the ice in Antarctica. And it pretty much determines how everything works.
0: And I think that that, that point is so crucial that, you know, I talked a little bit about Milakovich cycles and the natural cycles of, of um, interglacial periods, glacial maximums and, you know, the, the way that the, the planet normally changes you know, at the last ice age, we were up to 32% coverage of the, of the entire planet in, in ice. and Now we're down to 10%, and that's a natural cycle. But what we are seeing with, with human-caused climate change at, at the moment, and the, the warming of the, the planet, is that it's so quick, and that animals need that time to, to change and adapt and just get used to it. So what are we seeing in Antarctica at the moment? Are, are, they, are they learning to, to change with that?
1: It's interesting. We have kind of the cliche of the canary in the coal mine because the polar regions change faster. And it is true. I have colleagues who study aerial photographs from 20 or 30 years ago and compare it to modern satellite data and see that 80 or 90 percent of the glaciers on the Antarctic Peninsula are retreating. That's exposing entire new habitats that didn't exist before. So it's it's more than just are they coping. It's like is where are they going and what are they doing? We have Certain species of penguin that don't like the ice, which sounds weird, but it's true. Most penguin species in the world live in warm countries. They don't live in Antarctica. There's only two that nest on the continent of Antarctica itself. There's the emperor penguins that everyone knows about who nest on the sea ice. And then you have the Adeli penguins, which are amazing little feisty little things that take no nonsense from anybody. But they need rocky places to nest. But they do like it cold whereas other species that live nearby like gentoo penguins and chinstrap penguins prefer it a bit warmer and less sea ice around and what we've seen is the adelie penguin ranges have been shifting further southwards and away from the antarctic peninsula and other species of penguin coming in and nesting in those places and replacing them so it's not that everything dies it's just like i said with the greening on land some things will appreciate the warmer temperatures because they're hanging on in the cold and it's hard for them. Whereas the real cold specialists that you don't find anywhere else because the gentoo penguins, you find them in the falcon islands, for example. So they're, they're not Antarctic animals. They're cheeky little things that are coming in where they see a gap that they can live in. But that is a really interesting thing that you can already see those changes in the top predators. Whereas with these 20,000 species at the bottom of the sea, we don't even know what half of them eat yet, let alone, you know. We've, I'd say about 50% of them we found only once or twice ever. So we have no idea what dynamics are shifting there, but we do know from experiments my colleagues have done with warming up settlement panels. So the things you put out at the bottom of the sea where larvae of these animals will settle on them and grow, and you can count how much recruitment there is to the populations in the area. And what they cleverly did was warm these panels up as well to keep them at one or five degrees above ambient temperature. And you could see that the whole thing got messed up straight away as soon as you started warming it up. So some things shot off and grew much quicker and did much better initially, but then it became dominated by just a handful of species compared to the normal diversity you got. And even something as simple as daylight. So Antarctica's got a lot of daylight in the summer, 24-hour daylight. And if you've got sea ice, that blocks out a lot of the light. So in a lot of the shallow waters of Antarctica, you have animal dominated communities. So we don't have the big seaweeds and kelp and things which smother the rocks everywhere else in the world. And we have big sponges and amazing soft corals and things like that. But if you don't have enough days of sea ice in the year, especially during the daylight months then enough light reaches the sea floor to make a tipping point where you lose the animals and everything's overgrown by kelp, essentially. So it only takes a few days less sea ice a year to allow that to happen. And on land, we've seen similar things where invasive species that came in with the whalers and the original researchers and explorers, like some small midge-type flies, but these are flying ones as opposed to the native ones that can't fly they were very restricted on some of the islands because their life cycle requires enough warm days a year to reproduce. And so it would take them two or three years to complete a life cycle and to reproduce. But on some of these islands now, the air temperature is warmed by enough that they can reproduce every year now. And that's within the 50 years those animals have been there. We've warmed it up enough that instead of once every two or three years, so their population goes from one that doesn't really grow, to one that is now growing, and there's not much we can do to stop it. And we've had success stories where other introduced species have been taken out of subantarctic islands, for example. But they've been things like rabbits or rats or cats or other things that are big, and you can essentially trap or shoot or poison. But when you're coming down to kind of small things that live in the ocean that you couldn't track anyway, or flies and other things that doesn't sound like a lot to have a new fly, but if that's your new biggest animal in Antarctica, then that that's a huge change and it can change the whole ecosystem. So yeah, little bits of climate change that we wouldn't see as significant here. We wouldn't even notice it with one degree warmer every year in the UK. You know, our crops and other things might notice a little bit, but in Antarctica that's enough to change an ecosystem.
0: And I suppose there are so few people going to antarctica um scientists researchers um a bunch of uh, explorers and athletes go down every year as well whether they they head for the south pole or be in the um or doing other things down there is big mountain ranges uh in antarctica this is well on average um a couple of thousand feet above sea level, so ten thousand feet of sea level.
1: The the corporate line is it's the highest, driest, windiest, coldest place on the planet. They that's kind of that's what we've come to with all our work videos. But it always amazes people because they think there's loads of snow, and actually there's it has it's like a, it's literally a desert. It gets as much precipitation as a desert gets, but it just doesn't melt. That's the difference. So you might be looking at centuries of snow that looks like a lot of snow, but actually it's taken a long time to build it.
0: But it's you know, it's, like I said at the, at the start, kind of a nice place to, to start to wrap up is that it fascinates me because it is the, the place that feels the furthest away from all of us, but is potentially the one that we can affect most with the the fossil fuels that we burn, with the the plastics we put into the oceans and everything else. So it's just crazy that this place, this massive continent that's so far away, is still impacted as much as anything else is and the life around it by our daily activity.
1: We think of it as very far away, but when you throw something in the ocean or you burn something or you make lifestyle choices, what you're doing can directly impact a place that you, most people don't even know what Antarctica is. They don't know that it's a continent covered in ice. They don't know that it's, you know, had ice for millions of years. They don't know all of these things because people like me, that's our job to know all of that stuff. But they do see it on TV and they think it looks amazing and they think it looks beautiful and they have some sort of instinctive, that thing you're talking about of wow, that's the most remote, extreme, challenging place. That's the sort of place we should keep clean and tidy and everything else. And the truth is, we find our pollution in the snow. We find it in the ice cores. We find it in the oceans. We find it in the food of the animals that are down there. And we, we can't clean it up by running around Antarctica and cleaning it up. The way to clean it up is to stop putting things in at this end.
0: The decisions that we make and the policies that we put in place um going to change antarctica forever and and it is a beautiful place it's the last continent that i'm to i've yet to to visit and and do uh, science on which i'm excited about to to visit one day um but we are very very thankful to have people like you down there um just keep an eye on it because like you say it's people people talk about climate change and and the pollution we have that we make on the planet is we talk with climate change in like oh it's going to happen soon it's going to happen soon It is already happening. Um, And to have people who are tracking that change at the very minimum uh, is great. Uh, Hey Griffiths, thank you so much for for joining us on the Athletic Climate Academy. Um, Cheers.
1: Thank you for having me. Cheers.